All right, so today we will be continuing our series in the book of Nehemiah, uh, and our scripture reading is Nehemiah 9, 38 through 10, 39. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Peshur, Amariah, Malchijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Meluk, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Haziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests and the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Binui, of the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelaita, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Heshabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Perash, Pehath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Azgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Adin, Ater, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashum, Bezai, Harif, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hazir, Meshezabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Aniah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabna, Messiah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, Bana. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have, have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands of the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligations to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our father's houses, at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. 
We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Well, thanks, Caitlin. Uh, great job. That was incredible. Um, <laughs> man, um, I'm not going to say any of those names today, just so you know. Um, well, my name is Nate. If I haven't met you yet, good to be with you this morning. Uh, so back in 2012, our family traveled down to Florida to be with my mom and dad. And it was a special occasion. It was their 40th wedding anniversary. And um, we did something special. We, uh, we did a service in which they renewed their vows. Uh, it, was, it was a whole family celebration. Like some of our kids were flower girls. And like um, my sister's family is really musical. So they had some music stuff. You know, I'm a pastor, so I got to officiate the wedding, uh, not wedding, the renewal, right? And, and what was remarkable about it, it was 40 years to the day in which they had made a commitment to one another amidst all the, you know, failures over the years, amidst all the hardships, amidst a lot of the joys and struggles. It was an experience, you know, I'll never forget because 40 years later, they renewed their vows, forsaking all others uh, till death do us part. My dad actually died a year and a half later. And um, yeah, um, it's a significant event. And particularly in our moment today, culturally speaking, you know, you think about um, amidst apps like Tinder, <laughs> right? In a culture that stresses freedom and keeping your options open, that covenant renewal ceremony was a stake in the ground that there's something different about that moment, about this relationship. And what's interesting is the scriptures actually say that marriage is a signpost. In other words, it points to something greater. And it's actually a signpost that points to this, that you and I were created for an exclusive, one-of-a-kind relationship with God. And uh, in which he gives all of himself to us, and we, in response, give all of ourselves to him. Uh, you know, um, and that's actually what we see in this passage I'm looking at the book of Nehemiah, and we see this is actually the climax of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah because we see this fifth century community, this people of God, giving themselves, all of themselves, 
exclusively to God. And as we've been working our way through this book, we've been asking each week, what can we learn from that community? As they were seeking to live out the purposes of God in their day, what might it mean for us in our day? And here's, here's simply what this shows us today. God is not merely after a vague statement of faith from you or me. Uh, he is not merely after a relationship in which it's filled with good intentions. He's after an exclusive relationship in which we give all of ourselves to him. So two things today, the cost of that commitment, and then secondly, the reason for that commitment. So let me pray and we'll, we'll get in. Father, uh, this morning, uh, this passage is challenging. And we would pray that uh, your spirit might be at work in our midst, uh, addressing uh, divided hearts and wills. And that might, you might do a work in a good way that would challenge us, that would move us towards you wherever we are today. And so we ask you to do that by your grace. It's your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the cost. You know, um, <clears throat> let's look at a couple of verses here. Um, in chapter 9, verse 38, we see the cost being here. It says this, because of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document. And then let's look again at uh, chapter 10, verse 29. It says this, we join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. Uh, this community enters into the language as a covenant, Underneath that, it literally means a binding agreement. This community is earnestly saying, we are all in. Uh, they are saying that in this relationship, we have, check this, obligations to fulfill. Uh, this cost is perhaps even most sobering when in chapter 10, 29, it says that they enter into a curse and an oath. And that word curse simply means that they understand by entering into this relationship that if they are unfaithful, that there will be consequences. You know, it's interesting, uh, back in chapter 9, verse 37, they'd already experienced some of these consequences. It says this, because of our sin, it's abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In other words, they were acknowledging as a community that the reason they were in exile was because of their unfaithfulness earlier. But the cost of this commitment goes even further. You know, in verse 29, they say this, to walk in God's law and do all the commandments of the Lord and his rules and statutes. In other words, the binding agreement was not just merely a bunch of words. It was, as Eugene Pearson would put it, it was to filter into lives in such a way that it was long obedience in the same direction. 
And it's interesting, you know, verses 30 to 39 unpacks specific details of how this would relate to their lives. And commentators know that this is selective. This isn't obviously the entire law, but these were actually specific areas that where they had compromised earlier. And they're spelling out in this covenant a commitment to be faithful. And it's interesting, even though it's a very different cultural moment then, nonetheless, they actually relate to our moment even today. Three areas, they talk about marriage, rest or Sabbath, they talk about finances and a relationship to the church. So let's look at those a moment. Look at verse 30. Uh, This is what it says. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Um, Just to know that this was not something where you shouldn't marry another race. But rather in that context, it meant marrying into another family that worshipped a different god. And this had for years troubled the people of God. They had all sorts of practices from around the region of other nations like child sacrifice and so forth, and it had led them astray over the years. In other words, the cost of this commitment challenged their relationships right where they were. And it's not hard to think about that in our day. I remember uh, a few years ago doing a retreat and talking about... um, relationships. And I remember afterwards, this gal came up to me and she said, um, so here's the deal. I'm just beginning to follow Christ and uh, I'm, I'm living with my boyfriend. He's not a Christian. What should I do? There's a cost. You know, for a moment, think for a moment here today. Maybe you're a teenager. Maybe you're a 20-something and you're beginning to ask the question, Like, who might I think about spending the rest of my life with? Like, what's on the list for you, you know? Like, it might be uh, maybe someone who's taller than you, right? Or it might mean, you know, I really like this complexion or this kind of hair. But how about this? What if this was on the top of your list? Does this person spur me on? in my relationship and commitment to God? What if it started there? You see, so many times in this situation, people say, I'm committed to God, and then someone comes along and compromises begin to happen. The beauty, the allurement, the desire to be with someone, and all of a sudden, it goes out the door. And it's a divided heart. It's a divided life. But secondly, in this passage, we see rest and Sabbath. Look at verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Um, the, The Sabbath, it was a weekly structure given as a gift from God. You you go back to the creation account and God six days speaks and on the seventh, he rests. 
And it was a weekly structure from sundown one evening to sun up the next day, sundown the next day, not as a day off, not as a day off, but actually to heighten, intensify your relationship to God, built on rest and worship. And what's interesting in our day, right, we don't even blink an eye at the weekend, right? We don't even blink an eye. A 24-hour day of rest and worship, it's usually packed with various activities, and yet the Sabbath was a way of life that was to structure this community's relationship to God one day a week that would actually intensify a day to focus on that relationship to God. One of the books I read this last year um, is by a guy named Mark Comer. It's The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And he writes about how their family has structured a Sabbath. And he writes this. First of all, they make sure all the grocery shopping is done, errands are done. And they put their devices in a box, gather around the tables of family, open a bottle of wine, light some candles, read a psalm, pray. And then they just keep feasting for the next 24 hours, sleep in Saturday, drink coffee, read their Bible, pray more, spend time together, talk, laugh, go on walks, get lost in good novels. But they're trying to work, flush this out for their family. We've been trying to do that as, as a family as well. And I just said yesterday, I'm like, guys, we got to get, get back this, to this structure. This community and their commitment to God was making a commitment to build a structure in their lives around that commitment that would help heighten that relationship with God, intensify it. And then thirdly, in verses 32 to 39, we see a commitment to the temple. Uh, This was the place where worship and sacrifices were offered in relationship to God. This is where God's presence dwelt, in which they would offer their first and best to God. And moving this forward in the story of Scripture... This temple ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is actually the presence of God, the place where you meet and encounter God. And what maybe is even more remarkable is after Jesus, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, and he writes this about the church. Look at what Paul says. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And therefore, it simply means this, that a commitment to God will mean a commitment to a local church. One of the repeated words in this section, verses 32 39, repeated over and over again, is first fruits. If you have a garden, you know what this is, right? You work hard at, at you know, plowing and planting, and, and then there's that one day where you go out, and finally, there's something on the vine, right? First fruits meant the very first time you harvest, That's what you take to the temple. That's what you take to the people of God. And that means more than just finances, but it means this. It means you offer your first and best to the local church. Um, Listen, maybe I'm speaking to the choir here because you're all here today, but I recognize as I say this that some of you, 
perhaps many of you might say, yeah, I get the commitment to God. That makes sense. But a commitment to a local church, that is a really hard pill to swallow. Particularly in our day, where the past couple of years have revealed really, honestly, long-standing issues and problems with the church. And many of you are disillusioned. A few weeks back, um, David Brooks wrote an opinion piece in which he related a conversation he had with Russell Moore, who resigned his post in the Southern Baptist Convention because of the denomination's resistance to address things like racism and sexual abuse scandals in their own churches. And Moore said this, He said, every day he has conversations with Christians who are losing their faith because of what they are seeing in their churches. And then Moore said this, we now see young church, or sorry, we we now see young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism, not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. And friends, the average church in America since the pandemic has lost roughly 25 to 30% of their congregation. And many of them are not returning, and it's because of this. I was listening yesterday to one of my friends who's a pastor in Michigan and um, went to seminary with him, and he was speaking to this disillusionment. And he simply said this, I get it. Like, I get it why people are leaving. But then he said this, but for me, I always come back to the body of Christ because as soon as I imagine myself without the church, yes, some of the messiness leaves, but there is no life outside of it, really. Because where else am I going to find a community of people who are going to try to help me figure out what it means to follow Jesus? Where else am I going to find a community of people who will walk the life of faith with me with all the hardships and messiness and difficulty? Where else am I going to go to find a community that offers deep spiritual friendship, who will challenge me when I need to be challenged, who will stretch me spiritually, who will encourage me as a fellow pilgrim, and who will, in certain glorious moments, get a taste of the eternal life? Where else am I going to worship, get the sacraments, and be loved on and prayed for and supported? End quote. I get it. But where else are you going to go? And maybe I'm preaching to the choir, but at the end of verse 39, the chapter ends with this. We will not neglect the house of our God. In other words, to put it simply, a commitment to God will result in a commitment to his body. And Friends, this is just this section here, but but don't you begin to realize the cost of this commitment? It leaves no stone unturned in our life. It leaves no room for compromise. It shows us that God is after an exclusive relationship with us, and anything less than that is not on the table. Or to put it back in the context of a covenant in marriage, Who wants to sign up for the vows that say, I will remain with you when it's convenient or beneficial for me? Or or this, 
I promise to be faithful to you when the benefits outweigh the cost. No, we know that what makes up an exclusive relationship, a covenant renewal that renews our relationship, is when we say to another, till death do us part, and I forsake all others. That's the cost. The cost is high. But what about the reason? You know, one of the things that's remarkable, if you think about the cost, is as Caitlin was reading that list of names, it's a list of names of people signing on the line. This is what we're committing to. And if you think about the cost, you've got to be scratching your head going, why are they signing up for this at some point? Like, it seems like it'd be a whole lot easier to not be in that relationship. What is it that would actually propel them earnestly to give themselves to that? Because let's be honest, most of us want all the blessings but zero obligation. So what is it? You know, in verse 29, they make an oath, which today is, you know, you think about a courtroom, you know, where you swear to tell the whole truth. And, and that may not mean as much today, but back then it was to give one sacred, unbreakable word to fulfill the commitment. Why would they do this? What's the reason? Well, look with me for a moment back in chapter 9. This is what they, they say. They say this, Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. That summarizes almost chapter 9 completely. There are six times in chapter 9 where they recall the ways they have been unfaithful to God. And each time, each time they cry out for mercy. God, will you rescue us? And each time God shows up and rescues them. He is faithful when they are unfaithful. And do you realize what that means? Their commitment to God, their giving of themselves exclusively, is not them getting back into a relationship with this God. It's not the means of it. It's not a means of getting God off their back. It's a response of actually experiencing his mercy and his kindness. It's the very evidence that they've seen how gracious and kind God is in rescuing them in the midst of their sin and their failure. And friends, this is so different than every other religion under the sun. Every other religion says, I obey or I commit and then God will do something for me. That's not, this, that's not this God. That's not what's happening here. God is showing them mercy despite who they were. He's restored them to the very city of God. They've been in exile for so long, and they're simply responding to that mercy, giving all of themselves to this God because of the mercy they've seen and, and experienced in him. And let me tell you what. We have... 
a greater understanding of the mercy and kindness of God. 600 years later, approximately, on the outskirts on this city, Jesus, the Son of God, would be crucified. And Romans 3 sums it up this way, talking about the mean of his death, that we are to be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There's so much in these couple verses to unpack, but to put it simply, it means in the midst of our sin and our failure, God has given himself through his son for our sins in our place. And that simply means this, we don't offer ourselves to God to make ourselves right with him. No, no, no. We simply rely on him for mercy and kindness. And he offers up his one and only son. And therefore, this is what that means. To the degree you understand that, to the degree you will offer yourself to him. Not just part, but all. You know, um, several years ago, there was a woman who came up to a pastor after a service, and she was, for the first time, beginning to understand this radical grace offered in Jesus. And she'd grown up in the church, and she was just talking about, man, how did, how did I miss this? And then she said this, I think I know why. Because if I'm saved by my good works, there's a limit on what God can ask of me. There's a limit to what God can put me through. Because I have rights and I'm in control. But if this Jesus thing is true, that it is by grace and it's absolutely free and at an infinite cost to himself, then there is no limit to what he can ask of me. End quote. Listen, this morning, if you're not a Christian and you're considering this gospel, let me tell you straightforward, it's free. It's absolutely free. It's just simply by faith in Christ and you are welcomed in. But let me also tell you, it'll cost you everything. So let me ask you today, if you're not a Christian, Count the cost. Count the cost. Secondly, if you are a Christian, the question I've been asking myself <laughs> most of this week in preparation, i give it to you as well. What in your life would be different if you offered yourself completely to him? What relationships would be different How would you spend your time differently? How about your finances? How would your budget look different? Let me challenge you this week in City Group. You guys gather this week or next to work this out, to flesh this out. What might God be calling you to? 
close with this. John Wesley, a couple centuries ago, he wrote a prayer. And I'll close with this. This is a prayer we'll offer. But it completely expresses what this text is calling us towards. And this is what he writes. I'll pray it out. Father, I am no longer my own but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen.